I can see the I can see the reason that a lot of people should feel that uh, the claims of people who've been very badly treated often in the past that their descendants should have some new claims to rights to properties to reparations but I do not believe that ethnic identities ethnic assertion ethnic politics identity politics is what's going to create um, humane cosmopolitan societies is that because essentially what is happening is that people are being asked to think of themselves as different determined by their their ethnicity their yes. race so it's a sort of racial it is a racial thinking it's a racial cultural in thinking in which race and culture are absorbed into each other i'm very familiar with this argument because i grew up in apartheid south africa mm-hmm. what was it like terrible I left at the first opportunity at the age of 19. It's a, a terrible, terrible, destructive, inhuman ideology. And it upsets me very much to see its echoes in ethnic politics and ethnic assertion with the same idea of this uh, identity between race and culture. Things like the Basque movement in Europe, I think, are problematic examples. Welcome back to the second series of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. Today I'm talking with Adam Cooper. Adam is an anthropologist, most recently centennial professor of anthropology at the LSE. His books include Anthropology and Anthropologists, The British School in the 20th Century, Incest and Influence, The Private Life of Bourgeois England, and Culture, The Anthropologist's Account. But today we're talking about his new book, The Museum of Other People, From Colonial Acquisitions to Cosmopolitan Exhibitions. It's informed by a lifetime of research, and it is a history of the museums of anthropology from their birth in the 19th century to today, and previews, I think, um, their decline. He certainly does warn us about that. A crisis, I would say. (laughs) Well, let's start at the beginning. Why did you call them the museums of other people? It is an odd way to try and work out what the European museums of anthropology, primitive art, Asian art, archaeology, and so on, all seem to have in common. And what they have in common is that they're about non-European peoples. So they're a kind of other. And in France, there is this um, idiom which has developed, uh, Le Musée des Autres. And so I borrowed that, and I thought it called the Museum of Other People. So when do we get the first Museum of Other People? I would say um, there are <coughs> excuse me, a few tentative starts, stabs at it in the 1830s, but they rarely, the big examples come in the 1840s. And where are they? British Museum and the Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. Then shortly afterwards, you get the Musée de l'Homme in Paris. Yes. Mm-hmm. And... In Copenhagen, you get the um, National Museum of uh, Ethnography and Antiquities. So those all come in 1840s, 1850s. So what, what's the Museum Musée de l'Homme doing that the others aren't, and why is it doing it? There are two models that become established quite early in the 19th century. The one model says takes up from the Enlightenment idea of, of a progress, a progress of humanity, from very simple beginnings to more and more complicated, higher, more moral, more efficient, 
civilizations. And so that came to be called an evolutionist model, which is not a Darwinian model, of course, but it's an evolutionist model in the sense that things get better and better onwards and upwards. And so whatever you've got, you collect things by genre, by type, weapons, musical instruments, baskets even, uh, things to store, store things in, cutlery, modes of cooking. And you organize them from the most primitive to the most civilized. And you put together ethnographic objects and archaeological finds in the series. So the most perfect example of that is the Pit Rivers Museum in Oxford. Mm -hmm. The other model says, no, what you have to do is divide the world up into regions, cultural traditions, cultural regions. So you'd have a museum of, of Japan, or a museum of China, or a museum of Oceania, Polynesia, let's say, Central Africa. Because all the peoples in that area, until recently, until the intrusion of Europeans, changing everything, have a lot in common. Whether they're herders or hunters or farmers, they share a lot. And they're often part of a single state. And they are classes or regional specialities within the state rather than completely separate societies. So those are the two models. And if you look at the history of European museums of other people, you can see a sort of battle between these models. And sometimes one is taken, sometimes another is then brought in, and they go backwards and forwards. I'm interested in exploring a little bit more about this question of race. Yes. And how theories about race impacted upon museums and how museums advanced theories about race, certainly under sort of colonisation. Racial theory really becomes mainstream scientifically and politically in Europe in the second half of the 19th century. And it goes on really until World War II. And again, there are two models. The one model is about racial purity within a particular nation. So the Aryan model. The Aryan model is we have this racial identity. We must protect it. It mustn't be diluted by other incoming racial peoples because that will only lower the, the, the general level. Or you have the idea which, of course, Darwin's cousin, Francis Galton, develops, that we must work on improving our own racial stock by um, selective breeding of highest level and, and try and restrict the breeding of the not-so-good people around. So th that's the one model, racial separation. Our race is superior to all others, but anyway, it's particular to this particular area. The other model, which doesn't contradict it, but it has different emphasis, is that there's simply a hierarchy of races. And some racial groups are closer to early hominids, and others are more advanced and have developed further, and that is marked by having larger brains. Now, in the late 19th century, you developed this idea of history, which is that history is a competition between races, that uh, it's really a, a war of all against all. And the superior races will triumph, and the most inferior races will be wiped out, or certainly completely displaced. So that's one of the models. Now, a crisis for this model, the first crisis for this model, is the American Civil War and the issue so of slavery. 1860. 18, early 1860s. And, this, mm -hmm. it's, and slavery. Mm -hmm. 
So you have Darwin, for example, viscerally opposed to slavery. He says the abolition of slavery would be worth a great war, no question about it, and refuses to believe most of the time, although he wobbles on this like most of his contemporaries. On the whole, he says, I have met just as intelligent people in Tierra do Fuego or among black slaves in Brazil as in my own circle in London. There's no difference in, in intellect. So this critique of, of this racial hierarchy theory it becomes the critique of the importance of keeping the purity of race together is also a critique, particularly in Germany, uh, liberal physiologists and, and anatomists in Germany from the 1860s and 1870s, who say, on the contrary, the mixing of races strengthens and uh, gives a new vivacity to closed, more um, inbreeding groups. So you have all these theories around, but, but race, terrifically important, whichever way they looked at it. And then it's only in the aftermath of World War II that you have a big scientific engagement in the question of, are there really interesting or significant differences between the races? How implicated are museums in developing and promulgating some of those racial theories? Well, it varies tremendously, but the big picture story is that as racial theory becomes important in European and American science, late 19th, early 20th century, the museums become the depositories of collections of skulls, uh, skeletons, and so on, which it is believed are necessary in order to be able to solve these problems of racial differences and how many races are there and how do you measure them and what are the defining features of racial differences and so on. So a lot of the major museums, including in the Western world, have, have these collections for that reason. A second kind of reason for the collection of skulls and skeletons and so on is the study of anatomy in medical schools. And also you have the specialized development of the study of anatomy to see the results of serious injuries on the human bodies. This really starts during the American Civil War when bodies on, on the battlefield are collected and studied for these reasons. Then you have those are in medical museums. In, in London, the equivalent would be the Hunterian Museum. So there are different reasons for these collections. But really, by the time Julian Huxley and UNESCO are looking into the old myths of race in the 1950s, the museums are beginning to realize that there's really not much reason left for, for keeping these collections for the study of race. So what do they do? They become interesting scientifically for another reason, this is particularly once you have the development of DNA, that using historic old collections, I mean, in British museums you've got medieval, Roman, British, even uh, prehistoric uh, uh, um, collection, collections, but you can use these by studying the DNA to get ideas of migration, diet, health, spreads of disease, height, changing heights, and so on. So there are all different kinds of reasons for making, keeping some of these collections for scientific use. But there was no longer any reason to display them. So the museums were left with a lot of bones, bones and <laughs> skulls and so on, which no longer seemed important. Then there was a third 
category, which were kinds of human remains which were of ethnographic or archaeological interest, for example, mummies. So we've gone up to the sort of 50s and 60s. They've realised race isn't the way to categorise uh, human societies in the way it has been, but they still have these collections that were acquired in the colonial period and prior to that. What do they do with them? How do they keep going? How do they justify themselves? Well, for a long time, they didn't try and justify themselves at all. They just had them, you know, and they were in the stores. They were, they were looked out. And if you got into the back room of the Musée de l'Homme, the director took you around, he might show you a line of skulls, one of which was allegedly the skull of Descartes. You say, oh, my goodness. <laughs> so there were curiosities in that sort of way. But they weren't any longer central to what the museum was about or what was doing, the reason people came. But then you began to have, really starting in the 1970s, in the United States. It started with the um, uh, American Indian communities, Native American communities. You began to have demands for the return of human remains for burial. And that became symbolic of a whole lot of other issues. Where are where's our stuff? You took things from us. You're holding it. Give it back. We we are the owners. Or you're using things that you took from us to demean us, to make us look backward or primitive or strange. And we don't like that. We're not going to tolerate that anymore. So you have a sort of uh, politics moving into cultural institutions. Absolutely. It's a kind of identity politics, of course, obviously. And it is both an expression of a point of view which is understandable, but it's also a political program which is very much part of the general development of indigenous people's movements and attempting to give these a political voice and influence. And it strikes me that that happened at the same time as these institutions were beginning to rethink what they were doing anyway. So perhaps the two things begin to work together with Native American communities demanding things be returned, human remains, and museum institutions in a way wanting to. Uh, Not being particularly bothered by by them, but it varies, of course. There, There are certain kinds of human remains which, for scientific reasons some of the great museums want to hold on to, like uh, very ancient human remains, mm. which uh, you know, claims are made of on a, on a 5,000 or 6,000-year-old yeah. so skeleton. The Kennewick Man was... Kennewick Man. 9,000? 9,000 years. Yeah. And this is the most ancient human skeleton to be discovered in North America. It was discovered in area Oregon, and local tribal groups demanded that they given the skeleton to bury. And scientists at the American Museum of Natural History in New York said, for heaven's sake, this skeleton will give us all sorts of information about the kinds of people who were living in America at the end of the Ice Age and find out what they were like, where maybe get some idea of where they came from. All sorts of studies we can do using DNA techniques. For heaven's sake, let us study this. And there's nothing else that could give them that information? So it's well, this unique. was a unique a unique skeleton. It was unique. It, it was extraordinary. I mean, nobody imagined that you'd find in the Americas such an ancient 
skeleton in good condition, uh, six or seven thousand years old. I mean, sort of thing that you found in the Rift Valley in Africa in the most unusual circumstances and situations. Yes, so it was it was a great find. And what happened? Well, uh, it went through a series of long court cases, and eventually, the courts decided that it couldn't be classed as indigenous because nobody knew who it might be related to of any so-called living indigenous communities. We're not talking something where you can trace somebody back, that no. family back through those. It's just too long. Absolutely, too long. So uh, DNA studies began to be made of it, which were very important. And then one DNA study in uh, Copenhagen actually did find that the skeleton was related to ancestors of some of the indigenous peoples in Oregon. That was after quite a long time. And at that stage, when most of the work had been done, the DNA work had been extracted and done, uh, the skeleton was given over to various communities in on the West Coast and buried. So now it's gone. Yes. We'll put human remains aside for a moment, maybe come back to them. Let's talk about the rest of the artefacts in museums and the museums of other people. You said they're in crisis. Yes. Why is that and how does it manifest itself? Well, the main kind of crisis, the crisis that's in the newspapers and that everybody talks about, is the crisis of um, you've got a lot of stolen stuff there. It was taken in very bad conditions, imperial wars, or just straight up theft. And is that true, though? How much was taken, do you think, through theft? Very, very small proportion. But a couple of them are very high profile. And those are the ones which have become symbolic of all the holdings and things of other people. Probably the Benham bronzes, I think. Well, the famous one are the Parthenon marbles, Parthenon sculptures. They'd be the sort of classic example. <laughs> then, uh, Although I'd have to disagree because I don't think, I think there was a, an agreement between the Ottomans and Algon. And, but I agree with you. But nevertheless, they have been represented. I mean, since Lord Byron, they've been represented as a theft from whom particularly it's difficult to say, but anyway, from some institutional people somewhere in that little village in Greece, which by then was Athens. But it, it is interesting because it's a, a theft from a, from a Greece that is late, only later created. That didn't exist at the yeah. time, yes. yes. But, Even but, as an idea. But as an, a Greece that when it came into existence, and in fact during the War of Independence, a lot, a lot of its mythology was that it was the continuation of ancient Greece. Yes, that's yes. right. And in fact, that's when they began to, well, it's later, but they took down all the buildings around the Acropolis, which were not from that period. Yes, and of course, they did their best also to eliminate all traces of the long Ottoman period. In Greece. So, yeah. Another example is, of course, the Rosetta Stone. Because, of course, it's been taken by Napoleon. <laughs> the British stole it from Napoleon. They, <laughs> they, inter- they, intercepted, uh, they intercepted it and took it and put it in their own boats and gave it to the British Museum. And, of course, Napoleon had a long record of stealing all sorts of things from museums in the countries which he occupied. After the defeat of Napoleon, Duke of Wellington did try to see that a lot of that stuff went back. Anyway, so... So that, that's Which is an interesting thing in and it of itself, because I think yes. it, it's also a way of demonstrating superiority over the French, is that if we can 
we the Brits will return this stuff, we are superior. So in a way, cultural property is being used again to... Symbolically, of course. And so then you have the the imperial, the European imperial things like the thefts of um, the Benin Bronzes, the um, Dahomey, the French uh, taking the royal Dahomey treasures, the uh, British taking the Asante gold, you have a series of these imperial acquisitions in the late 19th century associated with defeats of major chieftains, kingdoms, particularly in Africa, but, but also, also elsewhere. And then you have the claims made on those. Now, I think, of course, there's a great emotional feeling that easily resonates you try it on children they will tell you that you stole it give it back but the question is you've also got to ask well give it back to whom and what is going to happen to these materials if they're going to be given back in the west african case uh, most of these chieftains that we're talking about congo dahomey asante benin which is really called edo were imperial states which were slave states, slave exporting states, slave holding states, run by tiny elites who were in cahoots with the European slave traders. In fact, their whole development was was based on this exchange of of slaves for European armaments and and so on and so forth, copper. So. Does that mean return shouldn't be done, though, because well, they were equally bad, if you like? Not necessarily. But then you've got the question, okay, so let's take the case of Benin Bronzes. The Nigerian State Museum, National Museum of Nigeria, has um, several hundred uh, Benin Bronzes, which were collected by the uh, British uh, Colonial Archaeological Service in colonial days, remained, became foundational to the museum. The museum, the National Museum in Lagos is in such bad shape that, well, recently a very good journalist, Barnaby Phillips, did a study and said they have an average of 30 visitors a day, mostly school parties, and none of their major parts of the collection are on show for security reasons. Because of local stealing or...? Local theft and... um, you know, very, 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 very difficult situation in these museums. They're also extremely... These are extraordinarily priceless objects. Yes. And a lot of them have been stolen and put on the world market. So do you want to give these Benin bronzes back to the National Museum of Nigeria? Not at the moment. So the governor of Edo State, where Benin City is, and a local entrepreneur, rich man have set up a a charitable trust to build a new museum there which would house these. But the Oba, the king of Benin, said, wait a minute, who are these people who are setting up a little private museum and collect soliciting funds all over and want to... No, they belong to my family. And they do, in a way, don't they? Well, it's arguable, isn't it? And give it back to us and I will build a museum in which these are going to be given. Well... Why did the Oba not build a museum a long time ago? Why all of a sudden are the Benin bronzes which were lying around in the palace 
which the leader of the British uh, colonial archaeological team moved to the post office in Benin City in order to give them some kind of safety. Why, why didn't he do this before? So those are the, the arguments. You're not, what are we going to do with it? Because it, it, it leads, leads you to the question of, well, then who does decide? Because in many of these debates, we have this idea of, well, the Nigerian people are speak with one voice. <laughs> they all want the same thing. But obviously that's... That's a strange idea of identity in a way because that doesn't... It's a strange them. idea and it is, you can see it as being a nationalist idea, a wishful nationalist idea for a country which not too long ago went through a brutal civil war on regional grounds and which is still threatened by all sorts of local insurgencies and which has a very, very sensitive and deep division between the Christian parts and the Muslim parts of the country. So it's ridiculous to talk about a Nigerian claim of on some prehistoric unity identity, but that's typical. I mean, that's, that's classic of most of the, the, these kinds of claims. But there's also the appeal to outsiders who do tend to see Nigeria as a single unit, speaking through its spokespeople, even if at the moment the spokespeople are saying on the museums three very different things to you. Nevertheless, they're there. Uh, the head of one of the major German museums said to me in despair that the curators, the young curators, think that Africa is one country. Not literally, but that's yeah. their feeling. Yeah. And that this one country needs all the stuff in European museums given back to whoever. That itself is interesting, though, isn't it? Because it's, it's often the curators or people like Macron who are arguing for repatriation. Which is one of the most interesting things I think about this whole thing is why they're almost shoving things out of the door. Yes. I think Macron is in a different position sure. from the curators. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you've got idealistic young curators who, who buy into a lot of these arguments. Back to your German curator in despair. Is that the sentiment that you pick up from museum professionals now? A lot of it. Another museum director said to me uh, when when the German government decided to hand back a lot of the Benin bronzes, well, in 20 years we'll be able to buy them all back on the open market. That was cynical, said in despair. But given the track record of previous Nigerian governments in the handling of antiquities, uh, not a completely uncalled for critique of um, the Nigerian government's record in protecting its materials. I quote in the book um, a Nigerian Minister of Culture in the 1980s saying, at this rate, we're losing so much of our cultural heritage, there'll be nothing to hand to our next generation. So people within Nigeria oh, absolutely. are deeply concerned. Absolutely, yes. The, the major Nigerian museum man and archaeologist of his time, Professor Edu, had to leave the country eventually. Uh, to find a place where he could express his his concern with uh, the handling of Nigerian um, heritage, archaeological. Right. How do you then account for the the drive to send them back when there there's no unity there, where there's concern about receiving these artifacts, when professionals in Germany are unhappy with it? Not only in Germany, professional museum people in West Africa. And archaeologists in West Africa express very deep concerns about these these issues. It's, it's not a, a we Europeans thinking about this. It's museum people generally 
having these concerns very, very strongly. Um, how do you explain it? I, th I think it's the same way as you explain the way in which the issue of the uh, Parthenon sculptures rises and falls in the political debates in Greece. So the more to the right a government is, the more insistent they are on returning these things to the glory of the ancient heritage and the more mm. left-wing, the more concerned they are about the way the symbolic resonance. What about the, um, the willingness, though, of these young idealistic curators? How do you, how do you account for that, or can you? Because they seem to be quite powerful. Um, yes, I, mean, I don't want to generalise about all of them. It's not yeah. all young people. This is a debate that rages within institutions. Let's just make that very clear. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, you know, they're not all young people. Uh, if you take uh, Dan Hicks, for example, who's written one of the major uh, recent arguments, published one of the most recent arguments for giving back mm. to what they now call communities of origin, Yeah, he wrote a book called The Brutish Museum. Uh, yes, uh, these things should be back. And not only that, they should, uh, European museums, particularly British museums, should atone for the colonial heritage and make peace with the past and so on. So it's, it's, it's an argument within the museums, so not just young people against the old fogies. It's, it's um, it, people taking a range of more nuanced and more extreme positions on, the, on this argument, yes. But it's a very live argument. But that's the one big debate, you see. I think there's another, for me, equally important and much more interesting intellectually in some ways, is what on earth is a museum of other people in the 21st century about? What do you do with it? But is there still room for another kind of museum, which is about other ways of life, trying to help the viewer to understand other kinds of ways of life and their relationship to each other and to Europe. And what do you think? I hope so. What would, what would it look like? I'm not so sure about the whole museum. I can imagine certain kinds of exhibits. So mm -hmm. take Brennan Bronzes. It would put Brennan Bronzes, first of all, in the context in which they were made historically, which is the connection between the Benin kingdom and first the Portuguese and then other European traders. Because the Portuguese bought the brass that they were part, in part made of, is that That's right? That's right. Yeah. So they come in exchange for, for local products. But also, of course, the Benin court artists of different kinds are in touch with also other artistic traditions in West Africa and also in the Sahel, more broadly, Timbuktu and so on. So they're borrowing, there's a lot of trade between these areas, and they're borrowing models. So that's they're influencing each other. Influencing each other. And then, very quickly, they're influenced by European models and also by European techniques of smelting copper and, and, and bronze and, and so on and so forth. And they began to make some of these objects, some of the more exciting objects, some of the most famous objects, feature European characters in them. Um, so a lot of the ivory carvings and so on were made for the European market. So they were actually made for the European market. Made for the, uh, salt cellars, mm. for example, mm. with, <laughs> made with, Euro, with with Portuguese knights in armour on them and those sort of things. There is a Ben and Bronze of a Portuguese soldier with it. With Indeed, yeah. a, a number of these. So, so there's, there's interactions. I would have this as part of the story. Mm. 
so not been in this single tradition which nobody yeah. else has. Well, has at the, like in the British Museum, you go and you go downstairs into the Africa section, and it's wonderful. But it is all Africa in this place, and you then have to go up the stairs around the corner to go elsewhere. Yes. So I, I think um, museum of relationships between cultural traditions, artistic traditions, peoples would be of interest. And another thing that I think is, is terribly important there is also to say these things that are being made are encrusted by history and can only be understood really in relationship to what was going on at the time and the kinds of borrowings and interchanges that, that people are aware of, including things like the introduction of Islam and Christianity and, and different kinds of of scholarship and writing. We must get away from the idea that these are closed. And so I would like to see then museums which are about connections, relationships, developed within a context of relationships and connections between museums today. So that is my vision. And why does it matter to you? It matters to me because I think that that's really the, what people have to understand about the world in which we live in is about the interconnections, the borrowings, the relationships, the conflicts, and the way in which these are expressed and understood creatively by artists, and in a way in which borrowings are integrated into new ways of life, borrowings of religious ideas, cultural ideas, artistic ideas, and I'm afraid, political <laughs> ideas <laughs> as well. <laughs> yes. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Behind the Scenes at the Museum with me, Tiffany Jenkins. Behind the Scenes at the Museum is now on Substack, the email newsletter platform. Visit Behind the Scenes at the Museum on Substack to find out more about Adam Cooper, details of the specific cases we discussed, the Benham Bronzes and Human Remains, for example, and sign up for future newsletters where I will be exploring the deep historical roots of contemporary controversies in museums, providing cultural commentary and recommendations on what to see and what to read.